electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange on a busy afternoon. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead with the markets about mixed. We'll get to that in a moment. Can artificial intelligence keep us out of recession? Our guest calls it the single largest investing opportunity in history. Goldman says it'll push up S&P profits by 30% in the next decade. Steve Cohen says it's why he's actually pretty bullish on the market right now. Or will investors just get fooled again? We'll debate and look at where the best opportunities are right now. Plus, AI also disrupting online search for travel and Google could end up being a big loser. We'll look at why and who is best positioned to come out on top. We also have three more names getting ready to report what to watch and how to trade Amat, Deer and Foot Locker. Before all that, though, let's get the latest on these markets. And I guess it depends on where you're looking. Dom. It, it does. But Kelly, the, the markets have been generally green and they have kind of hit the higher end of their recent trading range before backing off today. So as we take a look at the S&P 500, it is, uh, again, 4170. So we are kind of testing the upper end of the range generally that we've seen over the last month, month and a half or so. So that was pretty good, except now we've kind of come off. The session highs, by the way, up 28 points for the S&P 500, down five at the lows. So again, still positive and still at the kind of near the high end of the trading range, medium term. We'll see if that's six. The Dow Industrials, the underperformer, down half of 1%. 33,267, the Nasdaq Composite, the outperformer, up almost one full percent to 12,609. One of the main reasons for that outperformance, specifically in technology, what else? Because that's where a lot of them are housed. You have to check out what's happening within the Nasdaq at some of the big social media players, mega cap tech and, and communication services. Meta platforms, Alphabet, Snap, Pinterest, among some of the names generally in social media that are in focus today on some different headlines one involving the Supreme Court leaving in place liability shield protections so that Internet-based companies like YouTube owned by Alphabet, Google and Meta platforms are not responsible or liable for the stuff that users post on their platforms. And more generally speaking, Meta platforms kind of giving some positivity and some a little bit of a look into their AI chips that they'll be using in the future. Some of that stuff providing some of the positivity there. So watch those social media stocks and then. The stock of the day is probably has to be Walmart, big bellwether for the American consumer for just shopping and maybe the economy in general, up about one third of one percent. I will note that it was up much more so earlier on in the session, but generally a well-received earnings report. We were talking a little bit about whether or not Walmart can see some shifting trends in the way people shop much more towards grocery, Kelly and Staples. A little bit more, less so, I guess, if you want to put it that way, on discretionary items. Walmart, a big stock in focus right now. Global bellwether, the American consumer. It's a yeah. half of 1%. I'll send things Dom, how about Netflix? I mean, I, I haven't heard the AI angle there, but the stock's up 9% today. It, it, everything. If you, I mean, it's kind of like this generation's blockchain, right? Or if, you, or if you touch some other buzzword to what's going on. AI will be a big point for a lot of different companies out there. By the way, especially for retailers like Walmart, perhaps Amazon and others, Remember, Amazon says they're already big into AI. I know that I've been using Alexa 
for a lot of the stuff that I kind of just ask willy-nilly here and there. I've just gotten used to having that voice in my house. Yeah. It, it probably becomes much more ubiquitous in the coming months and years. That voice in your head. Dom, thanks very much. It. Dom Chu. AI has been dominating the news lately, and now major investors and analysts are saying it could also dominate markets and the economy, even helping us avoid the looming business cycle downturn. Paul Tudor Jones telling CNBC just this week that the technology will create a productivity boom we've only seen a few times in 75 years. ServiceNow CEO Bill McDermott echoed that on our air yesterday. And billionaire hedge fund manager Steve Cohen reportedly said investors may be missing a big AI wave of opportunity by being too focused on recession odds. Goldman Sachs says AI could push up S&P profits by 30 percent and boost U.S. net profit margins by nearly four full points over the next decade. And one of my next guests calls these numbers too conservative. The other says they're too far-fetched. Joining me now is Annex Wealth Management Chief Economist Brian Jacobson here on set with me, along with Keith Fitzgerald, principal at the Fitzgerald Group. And Keith, you're the one who thinks this is for real and maybe we're underestimating how big an impact it'll have. I think it's not only being underestimated, but most investors are simply not aware of the magnitude of what we're talking about. We're talking about something that parallels the invention of electricity, the invention and introduction of antibiotics, something that will change the course of human history. I think the Goldman numbers are an order of magnitude low. And in fact, every company is going to adopt or use AI in the next 10 years and profits are going to follow. So, I don't, you know, I, I, funnily enough, for those kind of claims, I'm not sure many people would disagree with you. Where everyone disagrees is what it means for the stocks that are affected. You know, when you see anyone who mentions AI, the stock gets a bounce. You know, the AI ticker is up double this year. Um, I don't know. It just we, we're reaching the point at which, you know, the hype's going to overtake everything and maybe drive things to silly levels. Well, respectfully, that's always a risk, right? I and mean, it's going to be like .com 22 years ago. When you put .com after you got pets.com, you got talking socks, ridiculously stupid Super Bowl commercials. There's going to be a degree of hype that comes with anything that's invented new. It was the same when we transitioned from silent movies to talkies. That is going to be very real over the next six, six to 12 months. But if you look out beyond that, if you look at the longer historical record and the introduction of technology, we have two things now that we didn't have. We have speed and adoption and breadth. And we've got billions of people carrying devices just like this one, which means that it is going to be in your life immediately within seconds when it makes effect. Quick final one before I want to bring Brian in here. But what so given all of that, you own what you buy what I mean, what doesn't have this priced in already? What's the basket for something that we're really just now building out? I think you go with the big names that have got the cash flow stability and development capacity. To me, this is going to be companies like Apple. It's going to be companies like Tesla. It's going to be companies like Palantir. I own all three. Apple, Tesla, Palantir. Interesting mix there, Brian. All right, let's turn to you for a little dose of, what do you call it? For to, realism. To, to, yeah, realism. Remember how Dr. Oh, Doom? We don't, have, we don't have Dr. Doom here. We have Dr. Realist, uh, as Rubini always like to claim. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that, you know, AI, obviously, I, I agree that it is going to be transformative. But this is going to play out over probably the course of decades and not necessarily over the course of months. So when we think about what are some of the most immediate concerns of investors right now in terms of inflation coming down, growth slowing, uh, AI is not going to fix those problems now. Maybe it will, maybe two or three recessions from now, but not immediately. And so I think, you know, there's some dystopian fear, some let me, utopian Let me just ideals. mention on that idea that it is true. So the semi-stocks would have looked way worse if it weren't for 
AI because we know we were coming out of the pandemic and had massive overstocking. And that was so did that already save us from the reckoning? I mean, did this come at exactly the right point for that sector in particular to keep us from a far worse downturn? That's a great observation. Yeah, for that particular sector, perhaps. But does that actually just mean that we're going to be slightly disappointed when we find out that it's not evolving or being adopted as quickly as what we might otherwise like? And so that's where, you know, we're thinking about it in terms of how will artificial intelligence help companies control costs? protect their margins and gain market share right and that can be applied across any one of the sectors it's also important to remember that the average age of an S&P 500 company right now is about 21 years so perhaps the biggest winner hasn't even been born yet. Sure. So what would you do investment-wise? You know, when Keith says he likes Apple, he likes Tesla, he likes Palantir here, what would the, what would be in the Brian basket? Yeah, probably the Brian basket is more of that longer-term view about it. I agree with some of the fundamentals as far as the cash cows, effectively, right? If you think about the companies that do have the margins, the cash flow generation capabilities, the flexible balance sheets, in order to adopt the technology as it becomes more evolved. And so we're actually finding some of those opportunities in the United States, but we're actually more overweight international and emerging markets. Hmm. A lot of the developments and applications could actually be really transformative, especially for emerging markets. Interesting point is they kind of maybe leapfrog uh, into certain areas. Uh, Keith, Sam Lesson today said that we might be at the Napster moment of AI, and I think a lot of people would share that view. And, and we'd also go, you know, no one looks back and thinks, man, I really missed out on that Napster investment. Well, I tell you what, betting against any of this stuff today, you might as well be betting against Steve Jobs back in the day. I don't know that anybody I've ever heard has said, I regret buying Apple. I regret buying Microsoft. I regret buying some of these companies. If you're talking short term, and to my guests, very, very valid point, you've got to have margin protection and flexibility. We share that view on a longer term investment balanced approach. But in terms of AI, you've got to be ahead of this. Buy low, sell high. These stocks are going to be dirt cheap a couple years in the Review mirror. Do you think, Brian, that we have at least pushed off the, the recession by a couple of months? I mean, literally because of this, because of all the investment that's happening and the business transformation, even the high. I mean, everybody who's been cast aside by other parts of the tech world for the past couple of years at least has an opportunity in AI to be redeployed. And did that, you know, help us out in a big way there? Sadly, no, I don't think so, because a lot of the people when we saw the layoffs, did they actually have the skill sets necessary to pivot towards AI or were they more focused on other projects? Oh, and in terms of the investment, we're just not seeing that in terms of capital investment from businesses. So that's where it's you do have to take that longer term view. So I don't think it's done anything to really stave off uh, the current recession. And in fact, I think we've gone through a recession already. You know, if you think about Q, uh, Q4 2021 to Q4 2022, the earnings drop for the S&P 500 on a quarterly basis was more than 26 percent. We already had an earnings recession. I see Keith agreeing. So even though you disagree about uh, maybe how to invest around AI, you agree that maybe that has already taken place. Gentlemen, thank you. Keith Fitzgerald and Brian Jacobson uh, with the Dow down 152 points today. The Nasdaq, by the way, though, still positive, And that's the theme here. And while some AI claims may seem far-fetched, the technology is already being used to literally save lives in the medical field. Julia Borston takes us inside the OR. Surgeons making life and death decisions in real time are no longer operating on their own. They now have an AI safety net. Dr. Matthew Tollefson, a Mayo Clinic urologist, is one of hundreds of doctors at over a dozen hospitals across the country using what startup Theater calls its surgical intelligence in the operating room. The most fascinating part of this is we get this information in real time. 
Theater, which has raised over $42 million from the Mayo Clinic and VCs, advises doctors starting with pre-op decisions about techniques. Then it records surgeries, comparing the video to previous similar procedures to identify which decisions yield the best outcomes. We're enabling pattern recognition at, uh, at a scale that's never been seen before, learning from that in order to be able to inform you know, surgeons moving forward on the best approach to a certain situation. Dr. Tolufson says reviewing and analyzing surgery videos can sometimes take surgeons months, but this AI helps them instantly jump to key moments. We can perhaps predict things like if I make an incision here, this could potentially mean something else for a patient. It could predict a complication. It could pre predict maybe cancer recurrence or some things that are really critical to how we do surgery. AI isn't just being used in the operating room, but also by emergency responders. Okay, he, is he unconscious? Uh, evidently, yeah, I can't get any response. Okay. AI-powered Corti focuses on emergency medicine. It listens in on calls, analyzing voice and background noises, alerting medical professionals about any help the caller might need, like if a person is having a heart attack. It equips nurses and paramedics with real-time suggestions. But like in any new technology, there are risks. And in healthcare, patient confidentiality is always a top concern. And that has been a big focus for companies applying AI in the medical space. But many doctors see the upside from AI as massive. Frankly, I think most of these major obstacles are really addressed. And I think um, the sky's really the limit for where this technology can go. Julia joins me now. Well, Kelly, what's so interesting about this technology is it's not just surgeons and paramedics. We're increasingly seeing AI's value in detecting cancer or developing drugs far faster and more efficiently than ever before. And this is notable how different this type of use of AI is with a fixed data set deployed by professionals very different from the likes of chatbots, which are trained on the entirety of the Internet, and they've also raised plenty of concerns about misleading consumers. No, it definitely feels like the, the really interesting phase of this will be when corporations can use all of their proprietary data and chat with it. I mean, think about all the data we have here at CNBC, right? To, be, to have that chat-like capability will be phenomenal. Well, yes, because I think what we're really talking about here is deploying AI with a fixed data set and adding some of those conversational capabilities that we have seen and enjoyed so much interacting with with the likes of ChatGBT. But if you think back of what we heard in the testimony from Sam Altman on Capitol Hill earlier this week, all of the concerns were about misleading consumers, right? And what is the consumer experience here? How could consumers be taken advantage of? Could it impact voting in elections? But if you're looking at AI's use in, by, by the enterprise, it's a very different use case and so much potential to make use of all that data. We've talked about data mining. This is data synthesis and action based on that data. To the debate the market's having about how much it'll increase profits or productivity, does this example offer us any insight? Absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about is surgeons not only perhaps being able to make better choices, but being able to continue to train the AI machine to get smarter and smarter and smarter. And so it's not like you could have one surgeon doing more surgeries, but you could make the one surgeon as smart as a surgeon with a lot more experience. So it's really leveling up people and giving them the expertise of all those who've come before or them. Or maybe then you pay for a, a lesser trained surgeon because you can overlay that with your you know, proprietary technology. And that, that is one way of reducing costs for I mean, you're going to still want people, you know, I, I don't as, like, I hesitate to propose myself, this. I'd want the more experienced <laughs> surgeon. But I do think it's really interesting to think about what the, the positive benefits are. And if you can address concerns about HIPAA compliance and about the safety of personal data, 
you know, I would want a surgeon to have access to the entirety of the history of surgeries about something very similar. Yeah. Um, or a paramedic, you want them to be able to have instantaneous access um, to information that could save lives. Yeah, no, I see Andreessen Horowitz today saying the next thing we need to build is better health care. And I'm like, great, bring it on. It's time to do this. Julia, thank you for now. Thank I'm Julia you. Borston. Actually, coming up from healthcare to travel, why AI could take a big bite out of Google's bottom line. And if you're wondering who benefits, we'll dig into the travel trade and some of these names next. Plus, tractors, trainers, and tech. We've got the narratives and numbers to know ahead of Deer, Foot Locker, and MS results tomorrow. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets where we see the Dow down 148 points, still near session lows. The S&P hanging on to a 10-point gain at 41.69. The Nasdaq still up nearly 1%. Netflix a top performer today. All of the big cap names that we mentioned. And the 10-year note has jumped to 364. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Google are now up 38% year-to-date as investors shrug off the company's initial missteps in AI and grow increasingly excited about its promise. But what if AI actually disrupts a highly profitable part of Google search, namely travel? My next guest says the addition of chat-based AI search will benefit Expedia and booking at Google's expense, and Google will likely no longer be the sole gateway to the Internet. That its revenue share, by the way, from search has also been falling since 2019. Joining me now is Alex Brignall, Redburn's travel and leisure analyst, along with our very own Steve Kovac. Welcome to you both. And Alex, it's a bold move to say Google's going to lose in anything. But uh, what do you see going on with booking Expedia and some of the others here? Yeah, sure. Good afternoon, and, and, and thank you very much for, for having me on your show. I, I think the crucial thing to consider is uh, the areas of focus that the market that the market has is what can AI bring in terms of disintermediating, you know, consumers and disintermediating coders, disintermediating lawyers, drive-through assistants at Wendy's, and also OTAs. Um, but you need you need to think about the starting point for that, and that is that the top of the funnel right now is a very, very, very consolidated industry that is dominated by Google. And if you're the only shop in town, then you can charge what you want. And and the consequence of that is that the OTAs pay a huge amount of money to buy traffic from them. Right. They, reading your note, you were saying basically the likes of Expedia and Booking are perhaps one of Google's biggest revenue sources, which is just incredible to think about. The, the thing I'd like to, to zero in on as well is this idea that Google won't be the only gateway to the internet. 
What if it is? You know, what if it's able to maintain that leadership position? Um, would that undermine the, the ability for others to do better? Sure, that, that's a great question. And, and I think that's something that when everyone is thinking about, I guess going back to that starting point right now, Google is upwards of 90% share of search in a, in a huge amount of markets. And they obviously were a tremendously successful in the, era of search, in the era of search that we're currently in. Going into the next era of search, what's to say that they're going to have over 90% in some of those countries again? It, it could be the same. In all probability, it's going to be lower. Um, you have a great level of progress, as you've already been touching on on your show, about OpenAI, ChatGPT, all source, OpenAI, um, open source AI driving progress. And, you know, we're seeing consumer facing programs sitting on top of that that are trying to get um, eyeballs from consumers and try to try to be the first place that the consumer goes to search for something. And if at the margin that reduces the level of share that Google has, and that creates different environments where these guys that control the content, and that is key, if they find different environments where they can buy traffic from, then that's beneficial. The more places there are to buy traffic from, the less you're going to have to pay. Right. And this comes, Steve, in a moment when OpenAI has just announced ChatGPT is coming to the App Store, which is... It's there now. I just downloaded it. it. Did you already get it? It's right here, yeah. So if you can talk with that and say, hey, I'd like to book a trip, you know, however exactly this is going to happen. Google, and this is, I think, a great point Alex makes, Google tried and kind of backed away from being in the travel business itself. So Because antitrust concerns, let's be honest. Right. So now has that opened the way? I mean, will they have to try to get back in there somehow? Or, or how's this going to play this out? This really reminded me, and I think Alex made a really good point in his report, was it reminded me of Amazon because we see so much, so many ad dollars shifting over to Amazon as people realize, why should I search in Google for the product I want? I'll just go to Amazon exactly. and do it. And we know how Amazon's ad business is doing. I can see that translating here as well. And, and But in addition, we should also note, Google's thinking about this. And our own Jen Elias on CNBC.com reported yesterday, they're already thinking about how to integrate this AI into their ads to make ads better and more effective. For example, doing similar to what uh, Facebook announced, using generative AI to help uh, smaller companies who don't necessarily have the capability to make these ads to just do it with Gen AI. Alex, maybe the question for investors would be, do you watch for headlines like Expedia or Booking developing its own chat app or do you simply watch for headlines about ChatGPT's app and think, okay, that becomes the portal by which these companies can benefit? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And look, you're talking about, about the, the potential for Google. The bit that we obviously don't major on so much in the report is the other side of the debate, which is can Google monetize other pieces of the industry that aren't in search? So I wouldn't go so far as to be tremendously negative on Google because there are other pieces outside of search that they could lean on to generate greater revenues to offset some of some of that lost search. To your point, you know, Google and Expedia are developing their own in-house functions. You mentioned Sam Altman on your show earlier. He is on the board of Expedia. They've got a lot of work that they're doing internally oh, wow. to help to connect consumers to themselves and to help to get more direct traffic. And that's that's hugely important. I think for the time being, it's it's kind of beta stage and it's it's a little bit of a gimmick to an extent. I say I still think that the biggest focus is, you know. Can you enable the traffic that you buy to be more profitable? Right now, as you know, Booking.com is spending as much as its entire EBITDA acquiring traffic. Wow! And that traffic is hugely, hugely accretive. And, and to Google, on my estimates, I think Google's making around one dollar twenty for a click that Booking is paying for. Wow. Now, if you had ten different places to buy that traffic from, if you imagine, you know, Microsoft Copilot could get you straight to Booking.com then maybe the cost of that is you know, significantly lower. I make a point in my note, which was an interesting parallel from one of my colleagues who said that if you look at 
you know, the generic drug industry, when generic drugs go off patent over the next 10 years, prices fall by 70 to 80%. And there's kind of a parallel there because you've got a monopoly product that's suddenly not a monopoly and huh. the price falls tremendously. So I think that, you know, it's, it's obviously difficult to draw, draw direct lines between industries. But for me, that's, that's kind of an interesting one. The other point that I'll make briefly is a lot of the questioning that I get is, well, does, does AI mean that, you know, you'll just have Microsoft Copilot going straight to the hotel? Right. And the point that I, I make in the report is, look, there are millions of properties out there, even before you start thinking about alternative accommodation. Every single one of those needs an API. If you had all of these super apps trying to develop their own travel businesses or, or their own super apps, do you really think they're going to go out there during that rush and try to connect to every single one of those small hotels? You know, the Forget simple places it. to just go to go to, go to booking.com and they're going to give you all of it. That's so fat. Is Google going off? Is search going off patent? <laughs> that is my big idea takeaway from this. It's fascinating. Alex, thanks for joining us to talk about it. Hope to check back in soon. Thank Alex Brignell from Redburn and, of course, our very own Steve Kovacs. Steve, thank you as well. Coming up, Speaker McCarthy says the House could vote on a debt ceiling deal as soon as next week. Is the White House on the same page? We'll get the latest on the drama in Washington. The Exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. The headline right now really is the Nasdaq. Another 1% surge today, even in the face of higher interest rates. I know Mike Santoli will you know, ding me for saying that, but it's a fact. The S&P is up a four-tenths of a percent today while the Dow is down only about 123 points right now, a little off session lows. We're watching shares of Bed Bath by, no, I see, I did it. Bath and Body Works today, uh, up 9% after beating earnings estimates. Revenues in line, the CFO says they're starting to see some modest deflation in Q2, and they think that will pick up going into the back half of the year, that deflation. Shares are back above their 50-day moving average for the first time since Feb. So again, Bath and Body Works is up 9% today. Elsewhere, Bolero, a name we've covered here quite a bit, plunging 16, now 17% after reporting a $32 million net loss in Q3. That loss was up 80% versus last year. The shares are back to their lowest level since September on what had been one of the best performing stocks year to date. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. NBC News reports that Ron DeSantis will enter the 2024 presidential race. Next week, the Florida Republican governor reportedly summoning his top donors and bundlers to meetings in Miami next week in conjunction with his expected campaign launch. DeSantis, long viewed as former President Trump's strongest Republican challenger in 2024, has also traveled internationally in recent weeks to raise his profile. Prosecutors in the trial against Pentagon document leak suspect Jack Teixeira say he had been previously warned about the handling of classified information. Justice Department lawyers told the judge that the Air National Guardsman continued leaking documents even after he was admonished by superiors on two separate occasions. 
And the billionaire investor Sam Zell has passed away at the age of 81, a titan in real estate and uh, specifically in REITs. He was a self-made entrepreneur and grew hundreds of companies during his more than 60-year career. Zell called himself the grave dancer for his frequent bets on distressed assets. Mr. Zell was an active philanthropist with a focus on entrepreneurial education. And, of course, he was a regular guest with us on CNBC. And, Kelly, I remember him as being a very unfiltered guy, a peppery fellow who told you what he thought. Yeah, you know, and when we are talking so much about REITs lately, he more or less pioneered that whole asset class. You know, some of the things he did with the structure of real estate are legendary. His sale in 2006 of his, I think it was a $30, $39 billion sale. I mean, he had this uncanny timing. Um, so people watched his every move. And it's, it's uh, so unfortunate he's no longer with us. Yes, we will miss him and uh, our sympathies to the Zell fam. Yes, Tyler, thanks. We're back after this. Welcome back. We're in the thick of retail earnings, but we've also got a key semi-name and an ag giant on deck. Let's get into that in today's earnings exchange, starting with Amat Applied Materials, one of the quietly best-performing chip stocks in the S&P so far this year, up nearly 35%. Last quarter, they did warn of ongoing supply chain challenges and charges from a cybersecurity event at one of their suppliers. But Amat also upped its dividend by 23% and announced a $10 billion buyback program in March. Let's bring in CNBC's Christina Parts and Evelis, along with Boris Schlossberg, Managing Director of FX Strategy at BK Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Christina, what are investors watching for? Well, unlike other U.S. chip equipment suppliers, Applied Materials is more exposed to what we call mature lagging nodes. And so these chips are often used in cars, sensors, and power stations. With lagging node demand still pretty resilient, we saw that with NXP and a few others, the overexposure to that sector could help Applied Materials offset the pullback in capital spending, especially that we've seen within the memory chip space. And I bring that up because recall Micron, was it, just a few weeks ago, had its worst quarter in history with over $2 billion in losses over just a three-month period. If they're not making money, they're not buying equipment, and so that hurts equipment makers. But fortunately for applied materials, it's less exposed to memory chips. And the last point I want to make is just about China. It's a very, very important customer to applied materials, and applied materials can still export less advanced equipment to the country. They got the green light, so all positives for the name. Great point, and not I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Micron. It's still up 15% in the past three months, which is amazing. Boris, let me turn to you. What would you do with Amat stock? So you know what else is also an important customer for AMAT? Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. Hmm. And I think part of the uh, trade in AMAT has been you know, the, the bet on AI. But having said this, as you see, the stock is really, really rallied into the earnings. So it's kind of, a, to me, um, a dangerous play at this point because if they do disappoint or if they sort of guide forward cautiously, all of their competitors basically got it down, and they have been underperforming everybody else in the industry. So it's kind of hard to, to think that they're going to overperform um, given the situation as, as it stands. It's really sort of a bet forward on a lot of their technology being supportive of AI. Uh, so to me, I, I'm cautious in front of the earnings. I'd rather wait, hear what they say. If the story is still good, it'll be good afterwards. If it's not, then you probably dodged a bullet a little bit. Are there any semi-names, Boris, that jump out to you here, or do all of them kind of suffer the same fate? They're all pretty much, you know, in the same. But I mean, you know, obviously, of course, in, in, Nvidia has been has been the, the semi name that you wanted to go. But um, I think all of them are sort of in this kind of a capital spend cycle right now, where there's a pause, um, and the market has really gotten very excited about AI. And it may have been, I think, 
as always, overexcited, kind of overreached a little bit at this point. All right. We'll leave it there, Christina. Thank you. Shares up three and a half percent, only about a 20 times forward multiple, by the way. But let's move on to Deer, which blew earnings estimates out of the water back in February. It hiked its full year guidance, increased the dividend by a little more than four percent. And it's got the opposite fate of the chips. Its shares are down 14 percent year to date, nearly nine percent since then. Seema Modi, what's the deal? Yeah, Kelly, sentiment has certainly cooled in recent months. There's been this active debate about whether the agriculture equipment cycle has peaked. Uh, so that's why tomorrow the key focus is going to be inventory levels. Is Deer right now seeing, are they sitting on more inventory than Wall Street is expecting? And is that pushing them to lower the price of their equipment to just get more devices out the door? The other big focus will be the company's technology budget. I spoke to their chief technology officer last month, and he was very confident that the company will continue to put more money into this division, which includes artificial intelligence and robotics. But what I'm hearing from Wall Street is there's generally a bigger focus on a timeline. When do we get to see a full ramp out, a full launch of their robotics equipment channeling 2024? Is that getting extended because of what we're seeing in the economy? That will, uh, of course, be something they really want more clarity on. North America is still holding up a lot better than overseas. In fact, Brazil has been a weak spot. And you know, Kelly, for the agriculture players, it's a it's a key market. So that will be something to look out for as well. Great point. The P.E. Ford multiple under 12. Boris, do you like the stock? I do. I mean, first of all, they're a leader in the X space. X space is going to be a growth story for a very long time to come. But most importantly, operationally, they're doing very, very well. They're kind of trying to um, move away from a cyclical component of just being up and down on the farm cycle to really evening out their revenue through a lot of smart industrial technology, which is what I call almost software as a product uh, that they're doing. There are a little bit of um, headwinds there because a lot of states are now creating these um, right to repair uh, laws, which could impact um, their contracts going forward. But overall, the fact that they're putting so much value added to all of their products via software, via AI, I think is going to be a very, very powerful thing going forward. And they're going to collect a lot more uh, very high margin revenue. Yeah, I'll take the over on how many times they mention AI in the call. <laughs> I mean, they, they, SEMA has been highlighting for a long time. They have been big on tech, big on all of this. And maybe now is the time to extra highlight that. Uh, SEMA, thank you. Our final stock today is Foot Locker, which is out before the bell tomorrow. Shares are up 11% this year. And we've got the retail reports this week with a bit of, I mean, I'll call it a little bit of a signs of a spending slowdown. Where does that leave Foot Locker? We turn to Courtney Reagan for that answer, Court. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, so CEO Mary Dillon has only just taken over as of September 1. And so she's looking at this year as more of a reset year because they're doing things like repositioning some of their store banners like Champs. They're optimizing their store fleet, which basically means opening up some, closing some, changing the size of others. They're also looking at cost savings, hiring new executives, reexamining sort of their positioning and their vendor relationship with Nike as Nike tries to move a little bit more direct to consumer and then they reshuffle some of their other brands to pick up that white space. So a little bit of a reset year. We're looking for earnings and revenues to fall fairly sharply year over year. Also look for margins to be a little bit compressed. We heard from Under Armour talking about how they were able to spur sales, but because of offering discounts on their goods. And so that might be a little bit of a clue as to what we might see here from Foot Locker. And then lastly, I would bring up your point about potential discretionary pressure. Now, Dick's Sporting Goods, a competitor, does argue that a lot of its goods are not discretionary, that if 
if your kids need new cleats to play sports that you have to buy them, that it's not really a choice here. But BTIG actually points out that Foot Locker's customer is a bit more lower income than general footwear customers. They say at about half their customer base, about half of them are lower income compared to about 36 percent for more broader footwear. So we're going to have to see what they put out tomorrow. But expectations are relatively low as they work through an awful lot of changes going forward. Good point, Courtney. Thank you. Boris, what do you do with the stock? Well, first of all, I'm going to say I'm going to steal all my research points from my wife, who is a much better analyst on Foot Locker than I am. <laughs> and her points were the following. She said that, you know, Foot Locker, there's a competitor called JD Sports, um, which is sort of mo- mostly European, but also has like 30% of, its, of their business in the U.S. and does similar business. They actually had a very, very strong quarter on revenue. And I think with Walmart's quarter today, as far as the consumer goes, there may be a little bit of an upside surprise. That having been said, you know, the street really is is comping down. I think it's going to be 8% uh, this quarter, minus 5%, next quarter a little bit better. And of course, the really, really big two stories, as Courtney was pointing out, is how is the relationship with Nike, which is absolutely crucial going forward, if that repairs, and I think that's going to be a big positive. And uh, what's Mary Dillon gonna, going to do? So in many ways, I think the stock is going to react far less on its economic performance this quarter and much more on what its future plans are and how they go, how effectively they're going to lay them out in front of investors. Boris, I didn't know your wife was a retail analyst. We need like a his and hers version of earnings exchange absolutely. next. She's very good. Yes. You guys like a power couple. You got extra insight there under that roof. Uh, All right. We'll leave it there, Boris. Thank you, Boris Schlossberg and our Courtney Reagan on Foot Locker. Be sure to catch an exclusive interview with Foot Locker CEO Mary Dillon on Squawk on the Street tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern time. And that does it for Earnings Exchange today. Coming up next after a break, less than a week ago, the CBO was warning about significant risk of a debt default by June 1. But the tone surrounding deal talks has turned markedly more positive. So is a deal around the corner or not? New details next. Welcome back. After weeks of partisan politics, it now appears the White House and Congress are on the path to a debt ceiling resolution, with Speaker McCarthy saying he sees a deal heading for a House vote as soon as next week. It comes even as a group of Senate Democrats, including Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are urging President Biden to invoke the 14th Amendment to avoid a default if those negotiations fail. Let's get to Kayla Tausche in Washington with all the latest. Kayla? Kelly, to be sure, the partisan politics are still alive and well, but at least for today, the smaller team of core negotiators for both sides met again at the Capitol after a marathon meeting yesterday with just two weeks before that critical June 1st deadline. The mood today seemed positive, and participants seemed optimistic a deal could be reached by the end of this week. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I'm not confident about anything in there. I I just believe where we were a week ago and where we are today is a much better place because we've got the right people in the room discussing it in a very professional manner with all the knowledge and all the background from all the different leaders of what they want. I know and I can see where a deal can come together. So certainly a different place than last week. And now Chuck Schumer, the top Senate Democrat, is weighing in too. The negotiations are currently making progress. As Speaker McCarthy has said, he expects the House will vote next week if an agreement is reached, and the Senate would begin consideration after that. 
But several Senate Democrats are not on board. Today, more than a dozen led by progressive Bernie Sanders sent a letter to the president urging him to invoke the 14th Amendment if the two sides can't agree to raise taxes as part of the deal, writing Republicans' unwillingness to consider one penny in new revenue from the wealthy and large corporations, along with their diminishment of the disastrous consequences of default, have made it seemingly impossible to enact a bipartisan budget deal at this time. Well, National Economic Council Director Lael Brainerd told reporters today the administration is seeking a reasonable bipartisan budget agreement, though the details of any nascent deal, Kelly, are still under wraps until it gets closer to time. So if they do the 14th Amendment or a discharge petition or something, does that mean the base will be dissatisfied if the president makes some kind of deal where he has to make concessions to Republicans when they said you could have just done an end round around this whole thing? Well, it's unclear exactly how much, how seriously the White House is really considering any of those stopgap measures. The president said that some of his advisors have told him that exercising the 14th Amendment is a legitimate option. But then last week, the Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo said the president is not seriously considering that and that the only thing that would keep uncertainty from permeating the markets is Congress lifting the debt limit. So certainly, you know, the White House is trying to appear as if it has other 11th hour measures that it doesn't need Congress for, but the question is still what it can do that will keep the markets from going haywire if they end up getting close to June 1st, Kelly. Yeah, it's been a very odd period of time, uh, but I guess everyone feels sort of confident about something. Kayla, thank you for now. We appreciate it, sure. Kayla Tausche. Still ahead, the Fed Vice Chair for Supervision, Michael Barr, proposing new oversight in for his banks in his testimony on the Hill today. But if regulation didn't work last time around, should we trust it to work going forward to catch problems like those at SVB? We're back after this with the Dow at Session Lows. Welcome back. The Senate Banking Committee holding a hearing on oversight of financial regulators two months after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which triggered, of course, more bank failures in its wake. In its testimony today, Fed Ch uh, Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr said we need to improve the speed, force and agility of supervision, something that will change the way banks operate. Joining me now to discuss Chris Kratowski, senior research analyst at Oppenheimer. And we're joined, of course, by our own Leslie Picker as well. Welcome to you both. And Leslie, Let's just start with what we learned at the hearing, and hopefully there was a bit of explanation by the regulators as well as to why they didn't simply carry out the duties that they saw on the job were, you know, they needed to do in order to prevent these failures. Yeah, I think a lot of it boils down to did they have the power to actually effectuate change in a way that would have uh, prevented these failures from taking place. So in that camp of what did I learn from these hearings, I learned that we should be expecting at least some debate and exploration of tougher rules, tougher capital levels, things that could be material to some of the banks uh, that we cover here on this network over time. I think it's something that likely will take a few years to really play in and, uh, you know, work their way in a material way. Um, but basically, the regulators said, you know, we didn't necessarily have the the power, the ability, the um, authority to to prevent these things from happening. So that said, Chris, the the logical and it's kind of inevitable, right, that they're going to go, OK, this all happened because of re more regulation. So what exactly is that regulation form going to take and how would it have changed the fact that they didn't literally have enough seats filled at some of the regulatory bodies to, to kind of do the job that they literally had a slide about SVB in a presentation to the Fed. Yeah, well, you know, when you look at well, the problem here, part of it is, as it was said, classic old failure of old style banking. They had too many 
uh, long-dated securities on their balance sheet. But part of it is also the fact that there is this new thing about you know how $100 billion can flow out of the bank uh, at a moment's notice. And to me, it was obvious uh, in September, uh, we downgraded the stock September 12th, uh, when they did a conference presentation at, at, at Lehman Brothers, uh, it was obvious that they had a, a rate sensitivity issue. Uh, it didn't occur to me that all the deposits would flow out on a, on a Friday afternoon. But, but the fact that they had an issue was obvious. And I think what you l look at from like the Barr report and from this is that you know the supervision is a constant process that the the the, the supervisors are in the bank every day of the week. They are every time they are uncovering something, they say, okay, take care of this. And so there's this constant flow of MRAs and MRAs, which say, oh, we found something new, take care of that. And then it takes a couple of months to knock that off and so on. And some are quick and some are take a while. So, you know, I think that's part of it. You know, that all said, I think there are some obvious things that, that need to be uh, changed and addressed. And it relates more to uh, liquidity management and interest rate management than it does to capital. And, you know, one of the things that didn't come out in these hearings very much is why are banks allowed to not uh, mark to market their bond portfolios, uh, you know, for capital reasons. And there's a good reason for it, which is that that would only be marking one side of the balance sheet. You know, most of the banks have also long-term debt on the other side of the balance sheet and capital and so True. on. And for most of the industry, it's reasonably balanced. If you if you look at the amount of uh, securities in their held to maturity portfolio for, for the industry as a whole, it's, it's about 80% of the capital that I have on their own balance sheet. So for the most part, they're matching long-term assets and long-term liabilities, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. For Silicon Valley though, that number was like 4x. They had four times as much uh, securities in their, in their held to maturity portfolio. But is there, Chris, just because we're running out of time, is there a regulatory tweak that would have prevented that from happening or done, what, what, would, the, yeah, what would the regulatory yeah, fix have been? There are two tweaks in particular. One is limit the amount of stuff that you can jam into that held to maturity bucket. You know, Make sure that it has some reality into what's on the other side of the balance sheet. And then secondly, get rid of this AOCI opt-out, where on the available for sale securities, um, you, you know, you don't, the smaller banks don't have to recognize it. You know, I understand if you want to make it easier for smaller banks, uh, or if you want to have lower capital standards for smaller banks, I, I don't agree with it, but I understand that. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have different accounting for the same thing. Leslie, which quick- Which is what we've had. Quick, quick <laughs> final word. Yeah, I would just say that um, that that line of questioning was actually posed to um, CEO Becker, who was the C CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, basically saying, if you had had higher capital levels, do you believe that it would have prevented, um, you know, insolvency at Silicon Valley Bank? And he said, no, right. this was fueled by the fastest bank run in history. This was a social media. This was a mobile banking. All of these technological advances that we've never seen this level of deposit outflow in such a short period of time. Yeah. And a novel deposit surge going into that, which is you know, arguably the most important part of this story. All right, we'll leave it there. We'll see what comes out of it. Thank you both today, Chris Katowski and, of course, our Leslie Picker. That does it for The Thank Exchange, you. everybody. Thanks for your time. Tyler is getting ready for Power Lunch. I think Julia, Steve, who else is in there? I'll join him on the other side of that break.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 